620 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Trust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Always appreciate you for sharing part of your Saturday with me. Lots to do on the show today. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the tax hike in the north suburbs on commercial landlords. That's been uh, something a lot of people are talking about on social media this week for sure. So we're going to check in with Albie Galoon from Crane's Chicago Business about that. And we're going to talk about the world of professional Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Masters. We wouldn't think that'd be a business topic, but sure enough, it is. But right now, we're joined by phone by Peter J. Henning, who is a professor of law at Wayne State University, who wrote about a push to end shell companies, often used to hide the true source of funds in the U.S., but it's a practice that he does not see ending anytime soon. Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Amy. Oh, certainly. Um, so talk us through this story. We, you know, we often hear about uh, that. We hear that term shell companies uh, when often in, in a court case, when, once there's been some kind of malfeasance, what someone is uh, accused of wrongdoing. And so what, what grabbed you about this topic and got you to write about it? Well, this has been uh, an issue here in the United States, probably going back almost to about 2000, that um, because... Our country is so stable that we end up attracting a lot of money from other countries, including, uh, as has happened, um, foreign leaders who have looted in their own country, and then they put their money into the United States. And, of course, you can create one of these shell companies, and uh, you don't have to disclose who owns it. You can appoint a local agent, often just a local attorney, and there's no way to know who's behind it, and so it has become a way to try to hide um, illicit profits or uh, money that has been siphoned out from a government, and it's really a way in which people can try to hide their identity, and so, you know, you see in Miami, for example, a lot of the condo markets are people from Central and South America who are sneaking their money out of their home country. And then tell me about the Corporate Transparency Act of 2019 and how that factors in here. Well, this has been, this legislation has been introduced repeatedly in Congress and the the real push has been can they get behind the um, the corporate shell? Can they get these firms to disclose who is owning it? Now, the House Financial Services Committee passed this, and they called it bipartisan legislation. It had 10 Republicans voting in favor of it. What's really going to be the interesting question is that the, the real estate industry rather likes these shell companies because it's a way in which you can sell uh, condominium or property where someone is trying to hide the true ownership. And so I suspect me we may well see the real estate industry um, looking at this rather unfavorably and not wanting to have the true owners disclosed. As you note in, in the piece that, that you wrote in the New York Times, and for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and tweet this out after the program so you can read it for yourself. It's very, very interesting. But you note Delaware in particular and the Secretary of State in Delaware, which is uh, an interesting spot, uh, an interesting role to be in, given how many uh, incorporations are are, t- are taking place in, in Delaware and have for such a long time. Oh, certainly. Delaware. 
Delaware is the home of corporations and then these limited liability companies, although in the current iteration of the bill, the Delaware Secretary of State and a number of other Secretary of States are endorsing the legislation because they don't have to do the reporting. And that was their concern with prior iterations of this legislation, that everything was put on them, and that, of course, is going to raise their costs. And so they are saying that they're supporting it, but you know how hard are they going to be willing to fight for it? And remember, we have a, the occupant of the White House is a real estate mogul. So uh, will he listen to the real estate industry, and if the legislation's passed, will he in fact sign it? That's an interesting question. That is a very interesting question. That's a really excellent point. In working on this piece and, and studying this, uh, this issue, what has been a surprising detail to you or perhaps something that, that you see getting glossed over in the, in the public narrative of this? Well, I think a lot of it is the fact that um, anyone can set up a an LLC or a corporation and not disclose their interest in it. And so it's you can go online as long as you have a credit card. You can create a limited liability company and not disclose who is behind it. And so it really has been an issue in the United States. Thank you so much. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. WGN, it's Amy Guth. Hello. Well, you know what? I promised you some Dungeon Master stuff. There's a really interesting piece in Bloomberg Business Week that I wanted to talk with you about, about how people are uh, charging upwards of 500 bucks a game for their services as a Dungeon Master. Uh, we are, uh, we're having a little technical difficulty getting a hold of the author of that piece, so hopefully we'll check in with her a little bit later in the program. But, you know, for right now, I, I want to check in. We, we're sitting here in the studio and we have, you know, TV screens all around us, but I'm watching as uh, uh, Hurricane Barry is now a Category 1 storm and is uh, nearing landfall, or it's, it's already made landfall, I believe. Uh, so I want to kind of check in about that a little bit. Bob, what is, uh, what is the latest that you have on that detail? I'm seeing some really dangerous flooding images and uh, the usual uh, you know, a- uh, anchors and reporters out in the field getting blown yeah, away getting and the, soaked. The, the wind-blown news anchors, but they're not, it's not so bad that they can't do it. So it looks like it's more of just like pre-storm activity. Um, you know, but the problem is too, the Mississippi's been f- so flooded. Well, and, and that's, that's my worry. Yeah, and that's a big worry. In particular of New Orleans, who still, I think, has the memory of, uh, you know, of Hurricane Katrina and all of that damage, uh, upwards of 1800 fatalities in that. Um, you know, I, I think there are so many issues that, that get very complicated very quickly with FEMA and what is, uh, what, you know, things that the city must do in order to be eligible for FEMA relief in those areas. I know President Trump just declared a, um, a state of emergency yesterday in Louisiana to release some of the funds, but there's still some really interesting and often unfortunate nuances to being eligible for those funds in, in New Orleans proper. Given that, given Katrina, it was kind of a, if you do X, Y, and Z with these levies, then you're eligible again. But I don't know all the funding has been there to do X, Y, and Z with those levies. So I think there's a lot of people keeping an eye on those levies that, you know, the numbers I, I saw yesterday were 20 to 25, uh, feet. You're, you're in good shape, but, but we're talking about, you know, upwards of 17, 18 feet of water. So that's, that's too close for my comfort, certainly. 
Yeah, and this is kind of New Orleans' first big test. I mean, what was Katrina was 2005, Five, yeah. so it's been a, I mean, they've had other storms, but this is the first one that's really, like, barreling down. But it seems like right now Baton Rouge is really, you know, the ground zero, if you will. And uh, New Orleans won't make, I'm not saying they'll miss it, but it seems like Baton Rouge may get the, the brunt of it, but we'll see. Yeah, that's right. I, I have some relatives in Baton Rouge, and I, I kind of checked in and just got a, meh. But I, I think that's the risk of living in a hurricane-prone area is after a few times, you know, after a lifetime of, or at least several decades of being in that kind of area, I think sometimes we do get a bit of apathy about that. And, and uh, I, I hope everyone is safe, not just my own people, but everybody's people. I hope everybody is uh, is safe. And I get it when people say, oh, I'm going to ride this out if there's not a, yeah, you know. I don't want to evacuate, and I get that there are financial uh, implications to evacuating. You got to find a hotel or find someone to stay with. You got to bring food. You got to do all kinds of stuff. But if you can, if you are able to evacuate, you know, do it, do it. There's no, there's no, um, there's no hero points for for staying put. No, I think that was not, yeah. a lesson we see in every single, uh, you know, every single hurricane. Well, three or four years ago, there was the the ones down in Florida. Now I'm forgetting. The, I forget their names now. Katrina, I rem, you know, you remember that one? Katrina, well, Rita. But this was like two, 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 three years ago. Two years ago is when we saw Hurricane Harvey hit the one. Um, hit the Gulf area of Texas, followed uh, almost immediately after by Irma. Irma. Hitting Florida and then Maria hitting Puerto Rico and the other side of Florida. That was, uh, you know, there's still uh, relief or not relief. There's still uh, uh, recovery efforts for some of the damage in those, certainly in Puerto Rico for sure. So, yeah, I mean, hurricane season is always kind of a hold your breath and and wait sort of sort of thing. It's it's often very scary, but I I worry about the apathy and I worry about the hero stuff. Uh, there was a really interesting piece. I'm going to find this and I'm going to uh, if I if I can't get it on the air, I'll certainly tweet it out later. But there was a really interesting piece talking about who uh, who will evacuate when, and generally speaking. People are more likely to evacuate if the hurricane has a male name than if it has a female name. Really? I don't, I don't know if it's just because, oh, what's Irma and Maria? What will they do? I mean, that's that's my aunt. That's fine. I don't know if it's about, like, we perceive men as more aggressive and, and more dangerous. I don't know. I have no idea what that's about. But it was, you know, looking at data, who evacuated when and what happened, and generally speaking... So that to me says, let's just name all the hurricanes men and let's just stop screwing around. But like really, they should be hurricane, you know, um, hurricane Clint Eastwood. (laughs) (laughs) Then... <laughs> like real would, tough guys. Some, yeah. John Wayne, the hurricane. James Bond. Yeah. That people are gonna be like, I'm out. 007 <laughs> is gonna make landfall. I'm going. I'm gonna leave. See now that people wouldn't be playing around with that and tempting fate. I get it. Not wanting to leave your home. I get it. Sometimes it's complicated with pets and a bunch of kids. Sometimes it's complicated with money to get everybody in the car to gas up. I get that. I know we saw a lot of that during um Hurricane Harvey. People were tweeting from their rooftops saying, I don't have the I don't have gas in my car to get out of here and the water's I didn't know what to do help me out here so uh you know it's interesting to watch disasters and and other big news stories in in the time of social media in which we have real time commentary on things it's it's really fascinating to you know to see 
exactly what's happening from multiple sources. We, you know, we, we all are a bystander now because we all have a camera. We can all, we don't have to, you don't have to say my word for it. You can just hear, see the video for yourself. It's very interesting right now. So, but you know what? It is time for us to uh, take a little break, get you to news. On the other side of news, we're going to be talking with Albie Galoon, senior reporter at Crane's Chicago Business, about the tax hike in the northern suburbs on commercial landlords. I think there's a lot of shock going on with, with uh, folks who own various types of commercial buildings. So we're going to talk with Albie about that. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. WGN. That is not the song I was expecting right then, Vivian. Really? (laughs) That's awesome. It's usually so chill here. Like, we usually have such chill music. I was like, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're coming back from news with the Rolling Stones. (laughs) We're talking Albie Gloon. That's what we're doing. Gosh darn it. Hi there. It's Amy Guth. This is this is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks so much for being with us today and sharing part of your Saturday. So right now we're joined by Albie Galoon, who is a senior reporter at Crane's Chicago Business, certainly a regular guest on this program, who wrote about the tax hike in the north suburbs on commercial landlords. This is a really fascinating story, one I have followed with great interest, as I know many others have as well. Albie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Great to be with you. All right, so talk us through this. I think there were some unexpected numbers that, that came out this week when we were talking about uh, what commercial landlords are looking at in the northern suburbs. So so share with us what you know, if you would. Yeah, so what's happening right now is the Cook County Assessor is going through the process of valuing all properties in the northern Cook County suburbs for assessment purposes. And, you know, an assessment is really the starting, uh, one of the key figures that you need to determine how much property uh, owners pay in property taxes. And so what's happened is we have a new assessor, Fritz Kagey, who was just elected last year, and he's changed the the way um, uh, he assesses properties from the prior assessor, Joe Berrios, and it's resulted in much higher values for commercial and industrial properties. Uh, residential properties have gone up as well, but commercial and industrial properties have gone up even more. And so what's happened is the, you know, the tax burden is, is kind of shifting from um, residential property owners to commercial property owners. And so why do we care about this? Well, you know, down the road, uh, if this continues throughout Cook County, and this is a process, the assessment process takes three years, and this is just the beginning for Kagi. Uh, but if it continues, it, it could mean that, um, you know, we have a major shift in the tax burden. And, you know, in some cases, we, you know, some residential property owners could see a, uh, a decline in their property taxes. It's it's all very interesting. Now, when we're talking about Kagi, who has who has moved the formula or the method rather for uh, assessing, uh, you know, for for assessing value. Um, oh, did we just lose him? I think we just did. All I'll right, call him back. No we'll baby. call him back. No problem. I'll just keep asking my question, and he'll just wing it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, <clears throat> for those of you who follow me on Twitter, while we're getting him back on the phone, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, after the program, I'm going to be sure and tweet out a link to this story from ChicagoBusiness.com. It's really interesting. I talked about it a little bit on the uh, on the Cranes Daily Gist because it's uh, um, I, it's 
it's just so different. It's such a shift from the way Berrios did things. And that's what I intend to ask him about next when we get him back um, is about this new method. But but what we're talking about here, let me read you this sentence. The total assessed value for all commercial and industrial properties in the eight townships, when we're talking about this, this north side, uh, north suburb area, uh, rose 89.9%. To nearly six billion versus a 16.7 percent increase to eight billion for residential, and that's according to analysis of data from the assessor's office. So uh, it's a really interesting kind of you know bit there. So I think we got him back. Yeah. All right, we got him back. Yeah. Hi, hi there. There you are. You're back. I'm back. All right. So what I was about to ask you was uh, the shift in, in the method of assessing value that um, f- that Kagi is now using. That's a, such a departure from the way Barrios did it. What is the new method that that I think a lot of people are calling a lot more accurate? Some people I think it's confusing just because people I think are often boggled by change. But what? How would you describe that new method? So it's it's kind of complicated, but what? Um a standard way of valuing commercial properties is to use a thing called a capitalization rate, which is like an investment yield. And it's the income from the property. A cap rate equals the income from the property divided by its value. And so what a lot of people do is they, they find a market cap rate based on comparative sales in the market, and then they will apply it to the net operating income of a property and back into a price. And so what Kagi has done is use a much lower cap rate, which actually is much more reflective of what's happening in the market for a lot of these properties. I mean, each type of property has a different cap rate from apartments to office to industrial. It depends on location and things like that. But if you have an estimate of a property's income and you have an estimate of a property's um, cap rate, you can calculate an estimated value. And so by using a lower cap rate, you get a higher value. You use a higher cap rate, you get a lower value. And so uh, what Kagi has said is that his predecessor, Joe Berrios, was using really high cap rates that did not really reflect the reality of the market. So he's just bringing these cap rates more in line with um, with what investors are actually paying for properties. So I'll give you an example. In Evanston, there's an apartment building called Amley. It's a 214-unit apartment building. This was this this change in methodology uh, resulted in its assessment going from 26 million up to 75 million. So that was a huge increase for them. That's pretty significant. And so how are commercial landlords, uh, I imagine they're scrambling, trying to think, how how is this going to work? Do I pass this on to my tenants? How do I make up the difference here? Well, it's true. And, you know, with an apartment building, it's, it's fairly simple because you don't, you know, an apartment landlord doesn't pass on property taxes to a tenant directly. I mean, they can raise rents to account for that. Uh, and maybe some will do that if their, if their property taxes go up, which they probably will. But, you know, like an office building landlord, um, they pass along property tax expenses to their tenants. So this is something that tenants will end up paying. And, you know, some people worry, A, for, for buildings like apartment buildings, that if you have a higher cost, property taxes, um, which is a very large, which is, you know, accounts for a large share of a landlord's cost. If that goes up, 
the value of their properties is going to go down and investors are going to be scared to buy properties in the Chicago area. And, um, you know, there, so this, so some people are worried about that. Other people are worried that, you know, this is going to make Chicago less competitive in terms of attracting tenants, attracting companies who want to rent space in office buildings in downtown Chicago and in the suburbs. But we don't know because right now all we have is the, assessed values in uh, northern Cook County. And as I said before, this the assessor then is going to do the south suburbs next year. And finally, in uh, 2021, the assessor's office will reassess uh, properties in the city of Chicago. And, you know, obviously that's where most of the property wealth is in Cook County. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens then. But nobody's going to see any change in their property taxes as a result of this in the northern suburbs until next year when they receive their property tax bill. Right, right. That's exactly, uh, you mentioned something exactly what I was going to ask you next, and that is if you had the sense in reporting this story and you, you followed this so closely uh, that real estate investors are, are worried about people getting spooked and worried about it depressing the market or the demand for commercial properties. Yeah, it's definitely definitely something that people are talking about. And, you know, I talk to a lot of brokers and they're concerned about it. Investors are concerned about it. You know, there are, I, I think, investors who have kind of uh, moved to the sidelines or, you know, if they're looking at buying a property, they might put in a lowball offer because, you know, if there's anything that investors hate, it's uncertainty. And right now, all we know is that assessments are going up in Cook County for commercial landlords. And we don't know how that trickles down, though, to property taxes because, um, you know, there are other variables that go into the calculation. It depends on, you know, how much money the, um, the, the local governments need. You know, so if, you're, if your assessment goes up 100% and my assessment goes up and we're the only two uh, property taxpayers in the county, that doesn't necessarily mean that our, our uh, property taxes go up 100%. They don't go up at all, all other things being equal. So, um, but, you know, we really won't know until next year. And then, um, you know, and then we'll just have to see what happens with, um, with the investment market. Absolutely, and that's why we, we love hearing from you here, because you, you make complicated things. Uh, you break them down to be much more uh, digestible. But I have to imagine, because this topic in particular is so, so tricky and there's so many factors and, and so many formulas to, to getting answers, uh, I, I just kind of a cursory glance on social media looking around at how people are reacting to this topic, it seemed like a lot of people... Uh, there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of, oh, this means this, and this means this. It seems like there was a lot of, I, I don't want to say conjecture going on, but a lot of people kind of kind of worrying in a way that it seems like th- that's why this story is so important and so important that so many people read it, because there's. Uh, it seems like you probably encounter a lot of misinformation, I think is what I'm trying to say in this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've talked to landlords who are supposedly pretty sophisticated people when it comes to, you know, financial matters and taxes and things like that. And, you know, they, they've said, well, my property taxes, my assessment went up 100%. So if my property taxes go up 100%, I'm in real trouble. And that's not the way the math works. So, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see property taxes of that magnitude, at least not, um, you know, in a general sense. But, you know, if it's, 
I think it's causing a lot of nervousness yeah. among commercial landlords. But on the other hand, I mean, if you're a homeowner, uh, you know, you should be happy about this, honestly, because uh, the tax burden is going to be shifting on to commercial landlords. So for these eight townships that the uh, assessor has assessed so far in the northern suburbs, um, now residential assessments account for 58% of the total assessed value, down from 69%. And so, you know, that's good if you own a home. That means that, uh, you know, commercial landlords are going to be shouldering more of the burden. Yeah, it's so so very interesting. I think that what you said was so key that it's so important to underline the difference between uh, assessment versus the tax bill. Those are, you know, no reason to panic. We just kind of have to wait and see what that's going to be. Well, we'll keep turning to you for the latest. Thank you so much, Albie Galoon, Senior Reporter at Crane Chicago. Thanks, Amy. Thanks so much. All right, we're going to take a little break, and we come back. Plenty more to talk about. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. <laughs> WGN. It's Amy Guth. And when I was a young lass, my father and I used to tear it up to this song. Oh, yeah? Fancy in the living room. So when you said, hey, I think I'm going to play this, I'm like, do it. (laughs) This is my special song. My dad, to this day, if if we're both in the same place, well, he's he's a bit older now and and not in the greatest of health, but when able, uh, we'll, we'll do something like a dance or at the very least just do the... Awesome. How do you describe this over the radio? Where you it was like the disco roll move? your hands oh, okay. and then point in the air? We'll yeah, do that. I, well, I think we explained it perfectly. <laughs> I know. I was like, wait a minute, I can't just do that and show it. It's, it's the the patented, you know, the Travolta movie. Roll your yeah, hands. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. Go. Anyway, here's what I want to talk about now. I want to talk about drinking. It's first of all, a lot of people are outside day drinking today. Mm-hmm. I saw on my way in, half of them had already pretty successfully done so. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I want to talk about drinking is this. So um, Anheuser Busch InBev said on Friday that it will not proceed with the planned listing in Hong Kong of its Asia Pacific unit in what would have been the world's biggest initial public offering. So uh, they were aiming to sell as much as $9.8 billion in Budweiser stock to seek relief from their heavy debt burden. And as a result, AB InBev shares ended trading in New York uh, down 3% as investors saw that prospect slipping away. And so that headline has reminded me uh, of a story that was at Crane's Chicago business just uh, about a week and a week and a half ago or so, maybe two weeks, about how brewers are switching to making hard seltzer because the craft beer sales there's less novelty there we, we it's not that it's declining per se but it's kind of you know it's people get it people know what the craft beer movement is they know about it there's a black market for it where people trade and buy you know bottles of rare beers from each other so they're starting to get into this um this kind of hard seltzer moment and i think it's made a lot of zima jokes do you remember zima What's Zima? I'm older. Than very you. 90s. Yeah, yeah very 90s. Yeah. Clear well, I was beer. Born, <laughs> I was born in the 90s. Okay, so, so uh, <laughs> some of us were not. Bob, help me out. <laughs> so, um, I was not born in the 90s. I can help you there. N- no, you and I were both. You and I were both born in the 70s and of age in the 90s. So um, Zima was like Sprite, but it was alcohol. It was oh. a malt beverage. It was clear. It was in a bottle with like a pretty blue label. And uh, it was just the new splashy thing. But So there's a lot of Zima jokes. People are like, no thanks, we already tried Zima. But nonetheless, um, sparkling water alcohol is is starting to be big business. And so big uh, big companies, Miller Coors, Budweiser's parent, Anheuser-Busch InBev that I just mentioned, uh, Coors Light, Bud Light, all these, they're like starting to look at 
what do we need to do to get into this hard seltzer game? Uh, there's speculation that a lot of that has to do with so many people are more conscious about um, sugar and their bodies and, and their carbohydrate intake and that kind of thing. And there's the... Um, what I've called the SAB, which is the sucky athlete beer. <laughs> and that's, you know, like Michelob Ultra. And I think they're d- fine. You know, if you're going to drink a beer, I think that's totally fine. And there's a lot of events like 5Ks and things. They'll hand you like a, a Michelob Ultra, like a Bud 55 or whatever at the end of it. And I don't know. I feel like if I've just run something, a beer is the last thing in the world I want ever. I'm not really a beer person anyway. Um, but nonetheless, so uh, Miller Coors is aggressively marketing Henry's Hard Sparkling Water. Uh, with a national ad, and then uh, AB Bev, they started at the Super Bowl time uh, to to rebrand an existing product they're calling Bon and Viv. Spike. And Viv? Uh-huh. You got to like drink it. I got to drink, everybody. You got to drink it. I don't know if it's any good. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if it... I, I if it has Viv on it, Amy, it's just It's going to be good. great. I tried the... <laughs> what the Not the... I keep wanting to say the Harry Potter name. It's not Ravenclaw. It's like White Claw. I tried that oh, one. Oh, yeah. I try, I'm not a big fan. Yeah, I'm, say, I'm it, not a big fan of that. I, I mean, just just go straight up with the scotch and soda at that point. <laughs> just, why are you right? messing with a can of something? Seriously. Um, I don't know. I think it's really interesting to watch things shift and and maneuver in, in businesses that have been around a very long time. I count the broadcast and media business in that. I count, you know, beer, that business has been around for a very long time. The right. food industry, I've been really fascinated watching the, the plant-based meat uh, thing happen. There are some companies that are trying to do plant-based dairy that are not like oat milk or almond milk, but like lab-grown dairy products. Right. You know, so I think that's really interesting. Just as more people are thinking about what they're putting into their bodies, thinking about their impact of their food on the planet, it's really interesting how the the food and beverage industry is responding. But um, I don't know. I overheard a conversation with some folks, uh, all men, about hard seltzer, and they. It was funny. They all sheepishly admitted that they liked it. They had tried the, I think the the White Claw one, but they all seemed like they were kind of like. Um, Maybe a little sheepish to admit that because they felt like somehow that was like feminine or something. I don't think it's feminine. Drink what you want, people. Drink what you want. All right, here's what's going to happen now. I'm going to go to break, and then when we come back, we're going to check in with Scott Katoon about what is happening on the Startup Showcase today because he just walked in the producer booth with a bunch of people. It looks like a party in there. So we're going to find out what that's all about back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Well, it's time for me, Amy Guth, to turn things over to Scott Katoon to take a look at what's happening today on the Startup Showcase. 